Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you after uh, a wonderful week uh, of intentionally thinking about all that the Lord uh, has done for us uh, and blessed us with. A wonderful week of uh, Thanksgiving, and I hope that you all had a wonderful time with uh, friends and family uh, over this holiday week. And uh, How many of you guys actually were very intentional uh, about giving thanks uh, on Thursday. It wasn't just about the food, but just thinking through of, yeah, you, can, uh, you don't have to raise your hands, but just really reflecting back of how successful were we uh, at intentionally thinking about all that God has done uh, on our behalf. Now, that is something that, that we are called to do. It's not a, a biblical holiday, but it's a, a national holiday to, to think and reflect about all that God has done. Uh, and uh, it's appropriate even uh, this Sunday just to... Think of something else uh, that we are called to be intentional about. And we're going to see it here uh, in John's Gospel, John chapter 5. Something else that we are called to be intentional about uh, on a regular basis as Christians uh, is thinking of ourselves as existing in a larger story. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, What I don't mean is think of yourself as a character in a storybook. Okay, uh, that, that, that's not what I'm saying. It's like, oh, is, is the reality really? I'm just part of a book of, uh, no. Uh, but we are a part of a a much larger, grander story uh, that encompasses all of human history, past, present, and future. Uh, and as as humans, we we love stories. Uh, and and when you study history, sometimes you had that history teacher that just kind of put things out on a timeline and made things really dry and boring uh, within that. And, hey, remember these dates and uh, all of this. And, and that's not the way history is called to be. History can be uh, absolutely fascinating if we see uh, the, the stories of humanity woven uh, within the, the bigger picture. Uh, and uh, we love stories and we naturally try and fit ourselves into one story or another. Uh, and uh, we, we place ourselves in that context whether we realize it or not. And so we have to make sure that we place ourselves in the correct story, uh, in, in the, the story of Scripture, uh, in uh, God's big grand story of redemption. Where do we fit in? Uh, and we have to realize that, that God has one story of human history uh, and the world is constantly bombarding us with other stories. Right, uh, other fictional stories rather than the one true history that we see uh, in Scripture, uh, and something we we go over constantly with our our youth students is, hey, what is the big picture? Uh, what is the the grand story of human history? And it's uh, the the story can be summarized as uh, redemption in Christ for the glory of God. Uh, we talk with the, the youth students, uh, so feel free to quiz any one of them. Uh, you have full permission uh, to do that. Okay, what are the, the, the big chapters uh, in God's creative and redemptive plan for history? And it's creation, the fall, uh, promise of a redeemer, then we have redemption in Christ, and then we have this phase that we are currently in of anticipation, where we look backwards at what Christ has done for us, and we look forward to his future return. And then, uh, finally, the chapter that we are still waiting for is the restoration of all things. When Christ does return uh, and he makes all things new and he makes all things right. Uh, And we we have to get this grand story correct. Uh, Because if we don't get the the big story that we are in correct, then the world really won't make sense. Uh, And we will... We will really fall for any other narrative that comes our way if we don't truly understand the story that we are in. Uh, and the importance of this, uh, of this is, is well stated in a book called uh, Restoring All Things by, by John Stone Street and, and Warren Cole Smith. They, de- they describe the importance of getting the story of our world correct in this way. It says, Is the world we live in a creation, an accident, or an illusion? Do we live in God's world or was God an invention we brought into our world? Is the world we live in the one described by Jesus, Richard Dawkins, or Oprah? Are we nothing more than the biological byproducts of time plus chance plus matter? Is the world nothing more than a fabrication of our minds? Different religions and philosophical schemes offer different visions of reality And it matters greatly which, if any, is right. And what we think is real will determine how we live. 
we need to know which world is before uh, what which world this is before we can know the answers to other important questions such as is the world fine the way it is is something wrong with the world is it society is it us is it them can it be improved can it be fixed these are all questions that we have to to think through and answer and our answers will will then set us on a course of how we're going to live uh, in this life. Uh, and ultimately, we need to, to try and answer these questions from Scripture. And we need to try and develop a biblical worldview. And a, a worldview is the way that we look at and interpret uh, the reality around us. Uh, and we need to understand what our worldview is and how we explain reality. Uh, and our worldview, every worldview will have explanations about our origins. Where did everything come from? Uh, about our identity. What is a human being? Uh, about uh, meaning. What, what is the, the purpose of life? About morality. Who determines right and wrong? And what's wrong with the world and how can it be fixed? And then finally, every worldview will have something to say about our destiny. What, what happens when we die and where is history going? Every worldview will have an explanation for that. And every worldview, depending upon how it answers those questions, is going to have severe implications on how we live, uh, how we interpret the world around us, and then what solutions we seek to the problems that we face. For example, back in September of this year, there was a 16-year-old Swedish girl uh, who addressed the United Nations. Her, name's, her name was Greta uh, Thunberg. Uh, and uh, Ms. Thunberg has quickly become the leading symbol of this worldwide movement of teens who are protesting kind of the, the international status quo uh, of how nations are handling and responding to climate change. And she, she spoke at the UN, and so I'm going to read part of her speech here, and this is her speaking to uh, the United Nations uh, at the Climate Action Summit back in September. And this is uh, her speech, how it began. She says... My message is that we'll be watching you. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that, what you're, doing, that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight? You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency, but no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil. And that I refuse to believe. That's how she, she began her, her speech. And this is how she ended her speech. She says, you are failing us, but the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you, and if you choose to fail us, I say, we will never forgive you. We will not let you get away with this. Right here, right now, is where we draw the line. The world is waking up, and change is coming, whether you like it or not. She closed with thank you. And while there are some aspects of, our, of her speech that I find very concerning... I also have to acknowledge that she is consistently living out what she believes. She is consistently living out her worldview. Uh, and we hear that in her words, what she says puts her worldview on display. She's preaching evangelistically to win others to her cause. And did you hear how, uh, as she spoke, she intertwined some of those categories that I read earlier? Now that she intertwined meaning and morality and destiny in her speech. And she, she made how people respond to climate change, she turned it into a moral issue. Did you catch that? So if we're not doing something about this, we are evil. Now that's, that's a moral judgment. And she makes uh, big statements about the, the current trajectory 
of humanity. And, and she's acting and speaking because she believes that that trajectory is headed towards an apocalyptic nightmare. And, and there is a sense in which she is living out her atheistic worldview even more consistently than many of us as Christians. Because she's saying, hey, he, this is where the world is headed. And so she is speaking passionately about what she fears is going to take place. Right? She says, this is where the world is going, so this is how I need to live right now. And in that sense, she is more consistent than many of us who say one thing and then do another. And if we as Christians regularly thought about what the Bible says about where history is going, that would change the way that we live, right? If we thought about that regularly, where, where is my life headed? Where is all of human history headed? we really thought about that and had that at the forefront of our minds on a regular basis, we would, we would be passionate just as Greta Thunberg is passionate about climate change. We, w- we would live zealously. We would live and pursue holiness. We would live not just for ourselves, but first and foremost for Christ and then for others. Because we would live with a burden to see others come to know and believe in Jesus just as we do. That's what we have to, to think about this morning. Now, and, and as we're going to continue our study in John chapter 5, we're going to see where history is going. Because Jesus is going to speak about that history. He's going to speak about our destiny, where everything is moving. And as we come to, to John chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 24 to, to 30 this morning. And, and when we... We parachute down into this text. We're coming down in the middle of court proceedings. We're coming down in the middle of Jesus giving his defense on why he has said he is equal with God the Father. And as we parachute down, really what he's going to say is that he is equal with God the Father. As we saw last week, he's equal in works, power, authority, and honor. And then this week he's going to continue that same line of thought and he's going to be saying that he is equal with God the Father and what God the Father has entrusted to him are two resurrections. And those two resurrections point out and demonstrate the, the power and authority that Jesus has. That he has the power to give life and he has the authority to judge. It's going to be pointing to the end of human history and saying, hey, I'm in charge of that to be the message of Christ in these verses today. So look with me at verses 19 through 30. We're going to kind of get a running start to, to grasp the context, but begin reading with me there. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these He will show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. And the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. 
As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So in these verses, uh, we're going to see two resurrections, in which Jesus will exercise both power and authority to raise the dead to life and the authority to judge all of humanity. Uh, And we are called as Christians to keep these two resurrections uh, on the forefront of our minds, uh, to keep these uh, uh, in our thoughts on a daily basis. Because if we do that, then it it will make a profound impact upon our life. We're not going to, it'll change what we pursue. It'll change uh, what we long for, what we love, what we desire. It will truly change our life. But what are these two resurrections? And how are they different? And why do they matter to us? Well, we're going to see those things this morning. And these these two truths that we are called to believe about Jesus are, number one, that he has the power and authority to quicken the spiritually dead. It's in verses 24 to 26. That's going to be the first resurrection. And then that Jesus has the power and authority to raise and judge everyone. That's going to be in verses 27 to 30. That is speaking of the second resurrection. But let's look first uh, at verses 24 to 26, that Jesus has the power and the authority to quicken the spiritually dead. Uh, And that's that's a word that you may not be familiar with. I'm not speaking of accounting software uh, when I say that Jesus quickens the spiritually dead. I'm not saying that he causes them to be faster. Uh, What I'm meaning by that is the idea of quicken is a verb that means to give life. Uh, to revive something. Uh, And that is what Jesus does to those who are spiritually dead. He gives us life. Uh, But let's let's look at these verses uh, together. Uh, And uh, what we're going to see in uh, these verses is that the details of the first resurrection, the the who, the what, the when, and the how uh, of the first resurrection. Uh, Jesus begins, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And that right there explains uh, who will participate in this first resurrection. Uh, Who is it that will have eternal life? It is those who hear and those who believe. Uh, That's the who. Uh, And uh, it's an interesting kind of layout here of of hearing the word of Christ and then believing uh, in the one who sent Christ and believing that God the Father sent God the Son to save us uh, is the message that we must know and that we must believe uh, with all of our hearts and all of our souls. Uh, and, and bringing that into our, our lives means that we are a part of this first resurrection. Uh, but then what does this resurrection look like? And that's seen at the second half of verse 24. So he who uh, hears and believes the word of Christ And then he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And that's what uh, this resurrection looks like. It's not a physical resurrection. It is a spiritual resurrection. Uh, It's a resurrection uh, that leads to eternal life. And the one who who hears and believes the word of Christ passes out of judgment uh, and into life. It passes out of death and into life. And this is, again, echoing what we've seen uh, in past verses uh, in the Gospel of John. Most notably, if you look back at John chapter 3, verse 18, because whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Uh, and that is what takes place. There is a, a transference when we place our our faith and our trust in Christ. Uh, that we pass from one thing into another. And Colossians one uh, thirteen says that that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Uh, this transference that takes place, um, going from darkness, from death, into Christ, into life, into light. Uh, and that is what we see Jesus uh, speaking of here. Uh, this is the, the spiritual resurrection that he is describing. And then uh, in the beginning of verse 25, we see when this resurrection will take place. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. So this is a, a present tense uh, resurrection. It's taking place right now at the moment that Jesus was speaking. Uh, and it is now coming. It's a, a present uh, reality that continues on into the indefinite future. 
taking place right now. And this, these are the exact same words that Jesus used and spoke when he was uh, addressing the Samaritan woman. Again, if you, if you look back in John chapter 4, verse 23, uh, he's teaching the Samaritan woman about what it looks like to truly worship God the Father in spirit and in truth. Uh, and Jesus says in verse 23, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And again, this, this connection is intended to be drawn between uh, the hour now is when we no longer worship God as, as the Jews did in the Old Testament. We don't go through sacrifice and all of these things, but now we worship in spirit and in truth. And our worship isn't attached to a particular location as it was in Jerusalem in the Old Testament. But now uh, we worship God anywhere and everywhere that we are because we worship through Jesus Christ. He is the new temple. He is the new place that we go to worship God the Father. Uh, and that is the emphasis uh, in John chapter 4. And the emphasis here in John chapter 5 is that we, the time is coming and now is for this first resurrection. It is already taking place and, though, and the spiritually dead are being raised. But then the question is, how does that happen? How will the dead be raised? And that's see the, the second part of verse 25 and, and all of verse 26 is when the, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Uh, and, and this emphasis of the, again, it goes back to the fact that this is a spiritual resurrection. It's not a physical resurrection. And, and we know this because of just what Jesus says right here. Uh, that those who hear the voice of the Son of God uh, will live. Uh, and the physically dead are not being raised at this point in time, are they? They're not currently waking up and, and walking among us. Uh, so we know that this Jesus, what Jesus is speaking of right here is uh, a spiritual resurrection, uh, that he is raising the spiritually dead. And again, this, this fits into the larger framework and the larger theology of Scripture, most notably uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. That, that is speaking of this first spiritual resurrection that is taking place right now. Also, Colossians 2.13, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And, and notice as we go back and, and look at John's gospel here in John 5, notice the power by which the dead are raised. You notice that Jesus doesn't have to go and work and labor uh, to raise up the dead. What does he do? The only thing he has to do is what? Speak. He says they, they will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will live. That's a guarantee, right? This will take place. They will hear. They will be made alive. And you can bet on that. A future and present reality. All who hear the word of Christ, all who believe in the one who sent him, will have life. And this is, this is absolutely remarkable what Jesus is saying here. Okay, because, because if we're reading this, what it should do is it should spark our memories. Uh, it, should, it should force us back to the Old Testament, uh, to Genesis 1. Because what takes place in Genesis 1? It's the creation story. And how does God create? Yeah. He's not using hands. God's spirit. He doesn't have hands. So what is he doing? God speaks and things come into existence. Things that never previously were there come into existence merely by the word of God. If you read Genesis 1, you'll see these words repeated. And God said, and God said over and over again, emphasizing the power of God. Psalm 33 speaks of this creation act of God. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. 
And then verse 9 in Psalm 33, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So when Jesus says the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will be made alive, we should immediately think of Genesis 1. We should also think of Ezekiel 37. We won't turn there right now, but I would encourage you to go and read it this week. Uh, The Valley of Dry Bones. Uh, Ezekiel is there and and God says, uh, Speak to the bones and they will live. Uh, say, thus saith the Lord. And again, of those, those bones come to life by the word of God. And, and if, if you think about it also in, in this way, as parents, how do you feel when your child obeys you? You say, stop, and they stop. You, you feel powerful, right? Or if you have a dog, a well-trained dog, and you say, stop, heal, right? You feel great, right? You feel great only if they listen. Right, uh, and, and you begin to realize real quickly the limitations of your own power when your kids don't listen or your dog is disobedient uh, and runs elsewhere. We we feel uh, power when when we speak and others obey. But we also need to, to see and and realize our own powerlessness and the power put on display by by Christ. As, as he, when he speaks, it, it's not a, a question of whether or not something will take place. There's no question as to whether or not uh, the dead will be raised. It will happen because of the power and authority of Jesus. And, and when Jesus is making this claim that, that the dead will, will respond to his voice, and we, we've seen in, in past weeks, the Old Testament makes it clear there's only one person who has authority over life and death. And who is that? That's God. Uh, and, and so when Jesus is saying, I have that power, I have the, the ability to make the dead living, he's saying something significant here. Uh, and the reason that he has that, that power and that ability to give life, well, we see that in, in verse 26. The skeptical reader of John's gospel might say, well, how is that possible, right? How can Jesus have this authority? Well, it goes back to everything we looked at this or last week and then Jesus' words here. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And it's like like Father, like Son. Everything that the, the Son sees the Father doing, he himself is able to do. Uh, and God the Father has given to the Son the power and the ability to to be and to have life in and of himself. And what Jesus has, he is now able to dispense to others. Uh, and I know as we look at this, these are some, some big theological truths. But but we can't lose sight that they are also an invitation. Okay, it's, this is lofty theology about the, the power and the authority of Christ, but we also need to see and understand that Jesus is at this same time inviting us to trust in him, to look to him as the one who is able to give us spiritual life, as the one who is able to give us eternal life. And if you're here this morning and, and you're searching for help, or you're searching for hope, and you, you're feeling the, the weight of living uh, in a world that, that's cursed by sin. Maybe some of you are, are coming this morning and you yourselves are feeling the weight of sin on your own life because sin has consequences. We always reap what we sow and that weighs heavily upon us. And I want to say that this is, this is why Jesus gives us these types of invitations over and over again, urging us to come to him, to look to him for life. If you want an easing of your burdens, Look to Christ. If you want an, an easing of uh, your guilt, if you want it to be removed, if you want it to be paid for by Christ on the cross, look to Him in faith. But what does that mean? You may have heard that frequently, and even as Christians, we sometimes just run right past that. Of look to Him in faith. But what does that consist of? Well, it begins with the acknowledgement that we are sinners, that we are sinful, right? That we need the blood of Christ to wash us, to cleanse us. That's what we remember every time we partake of communion, even like we did this morning. We acknowledge our sin before a holy God. Also means that we, that we abandon all hope of attaining forgiveness in and of ourselves. Through our own strength, through our own efforts, through our own wisdom, we say, 
God, I can't do that. We abandon all hope in ourselves. We forsake our past life that was ruled by sin and by self. And then we place all of our trust, all of our hope in the righteousness of Christ and what he has done and who he is. Understand that he is our only hope of being reconciled and accepted by a holy God. That is what Christ is calling us to and inviting us to do here. And if you're here today and you haven't done that, I would urge you to do that. To look to Jesus in faith. But if you are here and you have done that, then we have to remember this on a regular basis. Amen? We must remember that Christ has raised us up from spiritual death. He has given us life. He has removed that burden of sin, that, that separation between us and God has been removed because of what Christ has done. He has brought us out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. And we must praise Him for that. And we must think about that on a regular basis. Amen. We thank Him for that, not just this week, but every single week. Amen. You guys awake out there? You with me? But we need to praise and thank Jesus for all that He has done. I love what the Psalms say. Psalm 105, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. That's what we do at Thanksgiving, right? love going around the table and saying what we have been thankful for this past year. And that's a good thing to do at every mealtime, not just once on a Thursday in November. In Psalm 106, familiar lyrics to a song. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We can give thanks to Jesus for giving us eternal life. We can thank Him for raising us up from spiritual death. And if we have trusted in Him, then we have experienced the first resurrection. But you know, if I'm calling something the first resurrection, what do you know there's also going to be? A second resurrection. Uh, And that's what we're going to see in verses 27 through 30. The second resurrection. What we're going to see, what we need to remember about Jesus is that he has the power and authority to raise and judge everyone. Look with me again at those verses. And he has given him, that God the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. And do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, And come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And similar to what we saw in the first resurrection, the second resurrection, we're gonna we're gonna see the details of it here, the who, the what, uh the how, and the when. But not necessarily in that order. It begins in verse 27 with kind of an explanation of how will this second resurrection come to pass. Well, it comes to pass because God the Father has given God the Son all authority to execute judgment. And then Jesus gives an explanation. He says, because he is the Son of Man. And again, that, that should spark up our memory to something in the Old Testament. Something in the book of Daniel. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Because there is a a prophecy that the Jews understood that speaks about the Messiah and the authority that he will have. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 say this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, speaking of God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Again, the Jews understood that this was speaking of the Messiah. And yet what is remarkable here, that Jesus comes and he's speaking to the Jewish leaders. And what don't they see? That he is exactly who was prophesied, the exact one who was promised. And Jesus is weaving all of this together. says, hey, I have this authority because I am the Son of Man spoken of in Daniel. 
but the Jews do not see and they do not understand. So Jesus continues in, in verse 28. He says, Do not marvel at this. And he's speaking of the truth that he is the Son of Man, that all authority has been granted to him, that all power has been given to him. So do not marvel at this truth. The truth of those preceding verses. Don't be amazed. But understand this. When this second resurrection will take place. The when of it. Seen in verse 28, the very beginning, says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And, and this is distinct from the first resurrection, right? Because the first resurrection says, An hour is coming and is now here. But this is, An hour is coming. You see, this resurrection will begin when the first resurrection has ceased. When there are no more people coming to spiritual life, that's when this second resurrection will take place. Uh, and this second resurrection is a, a future one, and it is going to be a physical one. Uh, and that's what we're going to see. The, we see the when, it's, it's future, and then the who and the what are seen in the end of verse 28 and verse 29. That when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Uh, and so... At this resurrection, this involves everybody. All who have lived past, present, and future. Everyone will be summoned into the presence of Jesus. And they will be summoned to be evaluated, to be judged. And when, when Jesus makes this distinction of, of how people are going to be judged, he's not, he's not proclaiming a works-based salvation. He's not saying people are going to be... Uh, evaluated merely by works because we can't lose sight of the, the rest of all that Jesus has said in this gospel and in the rest of the New Testament. But, but the point here is that uh, words can be empty, right? But, but you shall know them by their fruit. Uh, our deeds demonstrate what we truly believe. The way that we live is going to reveal much that's taking place within our hearts. And so Jesus says there's going to be two separate destinies. So everybody's going to be summoned into the presence of Christ, but not everybody's going to have the same destiny. There are going to be some who are raised to a resurrection of life, and there are going to be others who are raised to a resurrection of judgment. And the doing of good or the doing of evil is predicated upon whether or not a person hears and believes in Christ. Because trusting in Christ leads to a transformed life. Uh, it leads to a habitual uh, doing of those things that are good. You, you live out uh, the, the, the works of the Spirit rather than the deeds of the flesh. But rejecting Christ means that you are continuing in a spiritually dead state and habitually practicing sin. You still remain in rebellion against God. And what Jesus speaks of here, this resurrection, is what we see at the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, and I'll, I'll let you look uh, there uh, on your own. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. When all humanity comes and presents ourselves before Christ for judgment. And it's going to be remarkable. And, and on that day, as Jesus has been entrusted with all authority, all judgment given to him, verse 30 helps us to know that that what Jesus does on that day, he's going to do perfectly. right? He, he's not an, an imperfect human judge. He's going to maybe get 99% of the judgment correct. No, Jesus is going to get every single judgment of every single person absolutely correct because, as Jesus says in verse 30, that he can do nothing on, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the, the judgment that Jesus executes on that day is in perfect alignment, perfect harmony with the will of God the Father. Which again, this is the whole point of this discourse, of what Jesus is saying. that He is equal with God and in perfect unity and harmony with him. Jesus says this, uh, emphasizing that there will be a righteous judgment on that day. And now I realize that as we speak about judgment, 
we speak about that future day, that's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable for, for many of us as we think about that. But it's something that we must have upon our hearts and minds, that, that thought of future accountability standing before our Creator and having to answer for all that we have done in this life. And if you read the New Testament carefully, there's this recurring theme uh, that we have to be ready for that day. Uh, Jesus speaks of it, and the, uh, the apostles speak of it. Uh, all of the New Testament authors speak of it. Mark thirteen thirty five and 36, Jesus says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Speaking of uh, the day of the Lord, the rapture, when we as believers will be taken up into the, the presence of Christ, and then there begins our evaluation. We, we won't uh, stand uh, for judgment at the great white throne. We won't be condemned on that day, but we will be judged for rewards at the judgment seat of Christ at another time. But we are urged over and over again in the New Testament to be ready for the last day. And if you think about that, in our 21st century world, we're filled with technology to the hilt. Right? If you think about doing an inventory, how many screens do you have in your house? Right? Most of you have a personal pocket computer with you right now known as a smartphone. Uh, and if you really think about what those devices do to us, how they, they transform us. They really become an extension of ourselves to a certain degree. But, but those little devices in our technology-saturated world, they really make it more and more difficult to think about that future time of judgment, don't they? That, that future time of evaluation of Christ, because uh, our, our smartphone devices, they, they really kind of disconnect us from history. Because as soon as you pull out your device, you kind of enter into your own little world, your own little timeline, uh, focused on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Uh, and, and other things come at you, yes, uh, but those are things that don't necessarily really matter all that much. Uh, C.S. Lewis in, in the Screw Tape Letters, he, he gives a name to this. This is the nothing strategy of Satan. And really, as I spoke earlier, that we need to think about and place ourselves inside of a greater story. Satan would love for us to, to not do that. To, to live displaced lives, as if there will be no judgment. As if we're not part of a, a bigger story, we're just dots on a timeline. Not thinking of any kind of timeline at all. And C.S. Lewis says, this is a strategy of Satan that leaves us at the end of our lives looking back with regret. Not because we pursued any particular course of sin, but rather because we became distracted with pursuits of those things that do not truly matter. Lewis writes that this strategy will leave us seeing, I now see that I spent most of my life doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. Anybody ever come away from your smartphone like, where did that half hour go? Where did that hour and a half go? Like you, you, the time just gets absorbed. And this nothing strategy, Lewis continues, he says, is strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why. Another author, Maurice Roberts, writes in his book, The Thought of God, because it is a true feature of Christianity that it points us continually to the coming day of God. And until we see the affairs of today in the context of the last day, we are unfit for the service of our own generation. He says, It is no surprise to discover, therefore, that false religion is short-sighted and prefers to offer its followers their good things today. Satan well understands that sinners prefer their blessings now rather than tomorrow. Hence he is in the business of entertaining men with the here and now. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, says popular sentiment. 
And this spirit easily creeps into the thinking of Christian people. Consequently, it is a hallmark of false religion that it takes men's gaze away from the last day and fixes it on this present transitory world. The precise object to which false religion draws attention varies with the error in question. But the procedure is the same in every case. And, and he's speaking of false religion, but you can just take in and the same can be said of the world around us. That the world around us is constantly getting us to focus upon the here and the now. right? Uh, and especially during this next month. Am I right? Anybody else feel that way? This, this Advent season... Again, I jokingly talked about Costco had Christmas stuff up like the day after Halloween. They, they, were, they were ready to, to push us forward into spending more money on things that we don't really need. And realistically, some things we don't even want. We're like, I just have to get this for some other strange reason. Right? And again, we, we lose sight of our place in history, We lose sight of the story that we are living in. And what Jesus is speaking of here, these two resurrections, we need to keep these in mind. We need to remember these. We need to remember that one day, every person who has ever lived will stand before Christ. And you and I may have an assurance that we will not be condemned on that day. But if we truly love our neighbors, if we truly love others around us, what do we also believe is true for them? There's a a personal eschatology, what's going to take place with us, but then there's a, a cosmic eschatology of where is all of humanity, where is all of history going, and we need to keep both of those in tension. What's going to take place in my life, and then what's going to happen to everybody else around me as well? Keeping those things in mind, we cannot just get caught up in the transient and the unimportant matters of this life. We can't fall prey to, to Satan's strategy of distraction. Because it's all too easy. It's all too easy to, to spend our lives doing things that don't really matter. But we need to pause, we need to reflect and think often about the first resurrection of what Christ is doing and has done in our lives and what he now offers to everybody in this world. The chance at eternal life, redemption, healing, hope, restoration. And we need to keep in mind the second resurrection, the physical one that takes place in the future. When everyone will be brought into the presence of Christ and as Philippians says, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But even with that confession, there will be some who do that with worshipful hearts and some who do that with rebellious hearts, acknowledging that Christ is Lord. As we zoom back out, just in this context of John chapter 5, these are big claims that Jesus is making, right? And and there's sometimes uh, claims that people can make that really can't be proved. Like, how do you prove that you're going to be the future judge and the final judge. How can you prove that? To a certain extent, Jesus is saying this, and you're like, well, that's easy to claim, because it, how do you demonstrate that? You can't really demonstrate that until when? Until it happens in the future. So how do we know, how can we trust that Jesus will be our final judge on that day? There's another way that he can demonstrate that. And that's by proving and demonstrating that he has the power over life. Because he's lumping those two together, right? He says, hey, I have the power to give life and I have the power to judge. I have all authority. And you can't verify the authority yet, but what can he verify? That he has the power to give life in the here and now. And what's amazing is that Jesus does that. If you turn over with me to to John chapter 11, we're going to see a miracle when we get there. Who knows when? The Lord knows. Uh, We will eventually get to John 11. Uh, And when we get there, we're going to see really this capstone miracle of Jesus before the resurrection. Kind of the the capstone of Jesus' earthly ministry is going to be the resurrection of Lazarus. And I want you to keep in mind everything that Jesus says here in John chapter 5, and then notice the same themes come in John chapter 11. Look at me, verses 38 to 44. Notice that the similar words. 
That's what Jesus described back in John 5. He says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this, I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. What do we see here? We see the dead responding to the voice of the Son of God. And what happened to Lazarus? He came to life. And it, it's been said that if, if Jesus hadn't said Lazarus, everybody would have come out. All of the dead would have been raised in that moment. But he limits it. He says, Lazarus. And this miracle, when we get to John 11, this is the capstone. This proves everything that Jesus claimed earlier in John chapter 5. That he is able to give spiritual life. Because again, how do you see that? That doesn't, that's not a visible thing that takes place. Again, when people believe in Christ, they don't get a mark on their forehead. Like, okay, it would be really nice if you believed in Christ and then your skin like turned purple. Right? You're like, oh, it's really easy to see who's a believer and who's not. But that doesn't take place. But we know and we can rest assured that Jesus is everything that he says he is. And he has all of the power and all of the authority that he claims to have because he demonstrated that in his earthly ministry. And now we are called to remember and to believe, to remind ourselves that Jesus has the power and the authority to give life and to judge. I'll close with this. Another quote from from Maurice Roberts, the author of The Thought of God. He says, No class of persons in this world should be more moved by the thought of the last day than Christians. It should be our constant topic of thought and our frequent item in conversation. It is a theme which we ought to rehearse again and again in our minds till it shapes and molds our entire character. For in the end, nothing will matter like appearing well before the judgment seat of Christ. We saw at the beginning of our study this morning, we saw Greta Thunberg. And we saw the zeal that she had, the passion that she spoke with. Because she's living out consistently her worldview. But it's a false worldview. We have truth. We have scripture. And we need to live as if we truly believe it is true. And we need to reflect upon these things, even as Maurice Roberts said. And may that be our contemplation as we go forth from here. And may that be our contemplation this whole month as the world around us is trying to, to get us to pursue the, the transient things, may we focus upon Christ. Uh, and may we worship Him in spirit and in truth, praising Him for the resurrection that we have experienced already and then again in